Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I'm not big on jokes, but I guess my favorite joke is the old Monty Python joke, which was, two peanuts were walking down the strasse, and one of them was assaulted. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from newsman, star TV host, author, and Monty Python geek, apparently, Anderson Cooper. That'll help break the ice. He's written a new memoir along with his mother, Gloria Vanderbilt. He's going to tell us about partying with her and MJ at Studio 54, and then he'll Mm -hmm. answer your etiquette questions. Also coming up, Parquet Courts, one of rock and roll's last great Hopes spins us a party playlist. Mm. Nanachka Khan, showrunner for the sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, thanks her dad for trapping her in a car. And Rico <laughs> gets his pawn on. All true, but first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Anti-slavery crusader Harry Tubman will replace Andrew Jackson on the currency. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have won their respective primaries in New York State. The Pulitzer for Fiction went to a first-time novelist, and to no one's surprise, the Drama Award went to Hamilton. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is editor-in-chief of the online cabinet of curiosities called Atlas Obscura. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to be talking about the body temperature of mice. Right. Because that's what we do at parties. (laughs) Of course. Talk to my landlord. (laughs) Oh, no. Sorry, Brendan. He seems to not care about them. No, why does it matter, the body Um, temperature of mice? um, Well, a new study came out this week discussing the fact that in labs, we're keeping mice too cold to adequately do experiments. Oh. So that if we get results from a from experiment on a cold mouse, it may not be the best result, is what you're saying. Yes, yes. Apparently, the labs keep the temperature between 68 degrees and 78 degrees Fahrenheit, which is perfect for humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, the ideal temperature for mice is around 90 degrees. They're hot little so, guys. Yes. You know, for years now, apparently, researchers have been wondering why they have trouble replicating certain experiments. Like, they'll get one result for a new tumor medication in one study and another result in another one. And the reason might be that we're forcing these poor mice to use all their energy to keep warm, therefore throwing off the results. Oh, oh. man. What other yeah. variables are bothering them? Like <laughs> lighting? <laughs> like being surrounded by giant nerds? I mean, that could you know, you just, but this researchers believe might be the missing link for a lot of questions about why certain experiments about metabolism or body weight are just not showing the same results. But this could be easily solved, though. They just need to turn up the temperature, and instead of lab coats, people need to wear, like, lab polo shirts. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Um, it's not that hard. I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing you're forgetting, my friend, is the smell. Oh, when it gets warm, yes. the mice... Mm. They stink a little more? Listen, they're they're like New York, you know, I think lab technicians can afford a little stink if it means that we cure cancer by turning up the radiator a little bit. That is probably true. All right. Rayhan Hermansi, (laughs) thanks so much for the small talk. Thanks so much, you guys. The cold small talk. (laughs) And now time for cold cocktails. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our globally admired history lesson with booze. First the history, 35 years ago this month, two minor league baseball teams, the Pawtucket Red Sox and the Rochester Red Wings, faced off at McCoy Stadium in Rhode Island. And it was one for the record books. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It was cold and windy at McCoy Stadium on April 17, 1981. Both teams prayed their game that night would go quickly. And it did, at first. 
After eight brisk innings, the Red Wings led by one run. But then, in the bottom of the ninth, Paw Sox player Wade Boggs hit a homer. The game went into extra innings, and a kind of nightmare began. Five extra innings went by, then ten, hour after hour, but neither team scored. Hits that looked like sure home runs got blown by the knifing wind back into the stadium for easy outs. Meanwhile, temperatures plunged. In the dugouts, players started fires to keep warm, using broken bats for tinder. Between the billowing smoke and the cold, pretty much everyone watching the game went home. At last, in the 21st inning, the Red Wings scored. But a few minutes later, Boggs kept the game alive by driving in another tying run. He later recalled, quote, I didn't know if the guys on my team wanted to hug me or slug me. Finally, at four in the morning, score still tied, the league's president suspended the game. The teams had played for eight hours and 32 innings, the longest pro ball game ever. Just a dozen or so shivering Paw Sox fans remained in the stands. They each got a lifetime season pass. But the story isn't over. That summer, the teams met again to finish the suspended game. And since major league players were on strike, this minor league game became a national media event. Alas, it was not another epic battle. The Paw Sox won it in 18 minutes. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it, I am joined by Beth Smith. She is a bartender at Murphy's Law Irish Pub and Restaurant in Paul Tuckett, Rhode Island, the home of the Paul Sox, uh, where baseball's longest game took place. Beth. Hi. Beth Smith is your name. You're not in the witness protection program. Yeah. <laughs> not as of yet. Well, <laughs> yeah, who knows? There's there's time. Um, first of all, have you ever had you heard of this baseball game before? Yes, is I that... have. Our hotel next door is actually has been home to the Paw Sox for many, many years. Oh, wow. And the opposing teams. So they've hung out, and, you know, we've discussed it. So you heard this interesting telling of the story. What drink did it inspire you to make? Well, we call this drink a record breaker because the guys <laughs> broke so many records that day, not only the innings, but plays and on and on, you know. It's true. They also broke bats and burned them. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's in the record breaker? We've got some Jim Beam to warm you up a little bit after a cold night like that. Makes sense. We've got some Amaretto, some Cherry Puckers. and. Wait a second, what are Cherry Puckers? It's like a liqueur. Okay, so it's, it's a cherry liqueur. Yes. And so, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What, what else is in the drink? We've got some pineapple, orange juice, and a splash of grenadine. Because we oh. have to have it red to match our guys' colors. What is it about New England and their love of baseball? I mean, is it simply the team, the Boston Red Sox, that you adore? Or is there something about the sport itself that appeals to the New England soul? Well, I think because we get so cold in the wintertime, it's so great to get out, sit, root on for your favorite team, you know, be outdoors and enjoy it. Very, like, quiet game, though. I mean, it... Listen, you don't know Red Sox fans then. We take our game very seriously. <laughs> Over the course of four hours, you know, you, the beer sets in, the sun sets in, people get a little drowsy by the end. Can you imagine eight? But that would be good for the concession stands, right? You'd probably sell a lot of drinks if people well, were... Well, from what I understand, they ran out of stuff at the concessions. They ran out of food and stuff, so... They may have resorted to cannibalism, kind of like... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> Just throw you on the grill over there with the bats burning. Beth Smith of Murphy's Law Pub in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And Brendan, I was just thinking of those fans who stuck yeah. it out all night to watch a minor league game. What is yeah. wrong with these people? Well, I mean, this is from a man who stood in a five-hour line for Star Wars tickets. Okay, that was important. Yeah. It was a cinematic event. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, you're still wearing your footsie pajamas. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, no line at our website. You'll find all our cocktail recipes there, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, and now the soundtrack in which great musicians DJ your dinner party. And this week, our guests are Austin Brown and Sean Yeaton of the band Parquet Courts. The Brooklyn by way of Austin transplants are banner carriers for good old guitar, bass, and drum indie rock. And they prove it can still be smart and surprising. Yes. Their latest album, Human Performance, has earned praise from everyone from Pitchfork to Spin. Here they are with the playlist. Hey, guys, this is Austin Brown from the band Parquet Courts. I'm here with my friend Sean. This is what his voice sounds like. <laughs> and this is our dinner party soundtrack. I like to start eating alone and the guests sort of file in one by one. And the name of the song that I like to play during that odd entrance to my dinner party is Please Ban Music by the Country Teasers. And this song I really like because it's got this really driving, crazy, kind of lonely guitar part at the beginning that gets just full on with the drums and the people are losing their minds and you just imagine shoving the gnashing of teeth. Yeah, like a good dinner party. Please ban music and drive it underground So maybe when it comes back up it has a pleasing sound At the kind of nucleus you've got a guitar, bass, drum, vocal situation going on. Don't get me wrong, rock and roll. But then there's a lot of weird sort of synth elements and noise. The Country Teasers are a band with no rules, and uh, at a dinner party of the sorts that we attend, there are no rules. We're talking like bone marrow and um, masks like a eyes wide shut kind of, but without the other sketchy stuff. You know what it is? It's a combination of the movies Eyes Wide Shut, Ratatouille, and... Uh, Jurassic World. Oh yeah, that is totally there, for sure. So the second song we'll choose for a dinner party is by Neil Young. It's called We Are In Control from the album Trans. Trans is an album where Neil really stepped out of his uh, comfort zone. I think it was created completely electronically, and all the vocals are you know, super auto-tuned. It's something that I think could be confused for like a Kraftwerk B-side. The lyrics are kind of anxious and paranoid. It's the computers talking about taking over. With We Are In Control, you have this sort of familiar voice, but housed in an otherwise completely unrecognizable kind of sonic background. You know, it's something that's totally danceable and something that uh, is there to remind all of our dinner party guests that uh, there is a higher power out there, and you must submit. We're controlling. We control. 
The next song I wanted to play for the dinner party is a song by the band XTC called Roads Girdle the Globe. XTC helped redefine what the rules were for what a punk record could sound like. To me, it just sounds otherworldly. Well, the bass is ill. The bass just sounds like the guy's just doing cartwheels and playing at the same time and, you know, is luckily just landing on the right note. All of the elements were in the right place. The moon was full, who knows? Everything lined up so that this bass player could play in such a way that usually is reserved for kind of one-off moments that bands share where they're like, oh man, it was cool when you hit that one thing that one time. It's too bad we don't have that on tape. Roads go the that was a great dinner party. I didn't feel like I ate anything. Me neither. I'm a little bit hungry. Parched, too. Let's get out of here. Yeah, and you know what? Before we take off, what do you think we should leave the people with? Well, how about a song from our new record? This one's called Berlin Got Blurry. Done rapper done right. An extinguished inside yellow fingers. Berlin Got Blurry is a song for the last man standing. It's one for that guy who won't help with the dishes or who needs to go home. You gotta choose one of those. You can't just sit there and watch TV. Sean? Sean. Oh, I'm sorry. Chances given without doubt. Guess you got a history, but it's not worth a mention tonight. Austin Brown and Sean Yeaton of Parquet Courts. Their new album, Human Performance, came out this month. They're on tour now. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, none other than Anderson Cooper tells you how to behave when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we'll speak with Cynthia Barnett about her book, Rain. It's a nonfiction book for those of you in Southern California. Uh-huh. Plus, Nanashka Khan, <laughs> showrunner of the hit sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, blames her dad for her sense of humor. Uh-huh. But first, it's time to answer your etiquette questions. That's right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is Anderson Cooper. As a reporter and anchor for CNN for 15 years, he's covered everything from the wars in the Middle East to Hurricane Katrina. His reporting about the latter earned him a Peabody Award. Anderson also happens to be the son of one of the most interesting new subjects in the world, Mm -hmm. designer Gloria Vanderbilt, who, as an heiress to the Vanderbilt fortune, has been famous from the day she was born. Mm. Together, they've written a new book. It's called The Rainbow Comes and Goes, A Mother and Son on Life, Love, and Loss. 
It's out this month, along with a companion documentary currently airing on HBO and coming to CNN April 29th. And Anderson, it is a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. I've always wanted my entire life to answer etiquette questions. So, oh, wow. Yes. As a wasp, this is in my DNA. <laughs> and I've been going to dinner parties since I was a small child uh, right. my, with my mom, so I feel like I'm eminently qualified. I was going to say this is kind of like your dojo, but it's kind of like your manse or something like that. Like, I don't <laughs> know if dojo is an appropriate term. Yes. Um, when you were planning this book, did you realize it was going to come out during the election year? Yes, when you'd also be a little bit busy reporting on the election. No, you know, I, we actually weren't really planning this as a book. I mean, th- this started as an attempt to kind of change the conversation between my mom and I. Mm. Uh, like any good Wasp household, uh, I, there was a lot I didn't know about my mom that she never mentioned and that I never asked her about. And so um, I used to have this fantasy about my dad. He died when I was 10 that maybe he had written me a letter and the letter would show up when I turned 18 or 21 mm. or something. It would tell me all the things I didn't know. And I didn't want to have that fantasy about my mom when she dies. So on her 91st birthday, we decided we're going to have a year-long conversation about her life. And for the first four months or so, it was just between us. And then I started mentioning it to some friends, and they all said, God, I, I wish I was doing that with my parent, or yeah. I wish I had done it with my parent. It's too late. So um, we thought, you know what? People might respond to this, and it, this might encourage other people to do it. When you decided that this was going to maybe be published, did it shift the tenor of your correspondence? No, actually, because it has no reality to me. Uh, nothing I do has any reality that anybody else sees it. I don't watch myself on television. It has no reality, like e- even doing this radio show that anybody's Whoa. listening. And actually, what's funny is I discovered my mom is the exact same way. My mom decided early on never to read anything about herself. Mm. And she decided this when she was 10 at the height of this custody yeah. battle she was involved with. And so she has no idea of herself as a public person. And I realized I do the exact same thing. Yeah. And it's actually nice. It's It's like my life is... People say hi to me on the street, you know, 50 times a day. Yeah. And I just think I live in a small town and everybody knows me. <laughs> um, and I just think, it, especially as a reporter, no good can come of viewing yourself as a public entity. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, celebrity is like gangrene. You know, you have to watch it or it's going to spread. It sounds like you weren't concerned about the publication part of this book because right. you have this way you deal with your celebrity. But there are some really intimate details you're learning about mm-hmm. your mother. Oh, yeah. That's why I was done over email, So, it, which, <laughs> uh, which made it much easier because there wasn't any awkward face-to-face thing, which, gotcha. of course, makes it for wasps is perfect. Yeah. Um, so it was like putting a message in a bottle and you'd send out this question like, yeah. you know, what was Frank Sinatra like? And then you get this response. I mean, I remember as a kid... Uh, we'd be watching an old movie. Uh, I remember watching Robin Hood with her, with Errol Flynn. And I said, did you ever know Errol Flynn? And she said, oh, yes. <laughs> and her voice sort of trailed off and she got all misty-eyed. And I was like, oh, there's more there. But now I know, like, what the deal yeah, was. And this is, I mean, something about this, actually, that occurred to us when we were talking about this is that some of the gents that she had relationships with, Marlon Brando right. and folks like that, some of them not having the best romantic reputations. Oh, not at all. No, these were wolves. Yeah, I mean, my, yeah. my mom says this in the book. I mean, she was 17 years old. She went out to Hollywood. And she was dating, you know, older movie stars. Errol Flynn, some guy named Bruce Cabot, who I didn't know it was, who was apparently married at the time. She mm-hmm. was dating, like, the wolves of Hollywood. Yeah. And um, she ended up involved with Howard Hughes in a very serious relationship. You know, like hot Howard Hughes, not crazy desert in <laughs> germaphobe Howard yeah, Hughes. The other one. Leonardo one. DiCaprio in the first part of exactly. the Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I said to my mom, oh, so you're talking about like Leonardo DiCaprio, Howard Hughes. And she was like, oh, much better. Yeah. In the <laughs> book, she's wild. like, oh, it was the first time I had uh, had, had an orgasm without faking it. I was like, oh, what? I don't need to know that. Yes. But yet you, I mean, that's the point of this conversation, right? right is to know that. Exactly. Yeah. So how did you it's deal there. with that? I mean, my mom, there's nothing my mom can say that truly would totally surprise me. I mean, she's 
a couple of weeks ago, she told me she'd been in a lesbian uh, yeah. relationship yeah. when she was a teenager. I was like, what? <laughs> this was during a TV interview, yes, right? Yes, I was like, hello? <laughs> what? That would have might have been something you might yeah. want to have mentioned. God, I feel like we should just call our mothers right now. God knows what they're doing. I'm yeah. afraid <laughs> now to call my mother. What, what don't I know? But I will her? say, honestly, I don't want to sound too cheesy, but it really was life-changing for me learning about myself. Like, I realized how much like my mom I am. Mm the similarities, the patterns that she fell into that I'm repeating. Yeah, one of those patterns actually arguably maybe led you into your career. She was a very impulsive person. Yeah. And you admit that there was a kind of impulsiveness that drove you into journalism. Yeah. Specifically, I'm interested in, I guess this was what kickstarted you, is that you faked a press pass? Actually, I didn't even fake it. I had a friend of mine fake it because I was bad with the computer. It was like early (laughs) days of Mac. And uh, yeah, he made a fake press pass for me. I borrowed a camera because I was, you know, a wasp and too cheap to actually buy one. <laughs> um, and uh, I just decided to start going to wars by myself. Yeah, that's, so, tell us about yeah, that, that first war. Uh, I snuck into Burma and uh, hooked up with some students fighting the Burmese government. And I knew right then this is what I want to do if I can for the rest of my life. You're meeting people who are fighting for their lives and struggling and you're telling their stories. It was yeah. just and it helped me learn about myself. I was really concerned about my own survival. My brother had committed suicide. And so being around people who sort of spoke the language of loss, I found very um, moving and powerful. It is interesting in the book how loss, you know, obviously hurt you, but also motivated you. Yeah, without a doubt. It's, you know, I lost my dad when I was 10. I mean, I didn't lose him. He died. Uh, I know where he is, but nothing ever feels safe again. And so I, you know, I set about a course of study on survival as a kid. I started taking survival courses. I started (laughs) earning my own money, working when I was 11. I was fascinated as a kid by how do people actually make a living? And like, how much do I actually need to make a living? I went to, my mom took me to Studio 54 when I was 11, twice. (laughs) And the second time was with Michael Jackson. And um, he was dancing and I didn't know Michael Jackson was because I wasn't a big music guy. And I remember turning to somebody and saying, oh, you know, he's really good at that. He should pursue that. Like, I was concerned about how he was yeah. going to make a living. Yeah. Then maybe he could afford two gloves. But even to this day, I watch old movies and I'm concerned about the people in the background of old movies. Like, whatever yeah. happened to them? Yeah. How did they support themselves? I look at the credits and think, like, God, all these people thought, yeah. you know, this was going to be their big break and yeah. they didn't make it. How do they make a living? Are they teaching acting somewhere? I literally to this day worry about that sort of that stuff. That is fascinating. On some level where you kind of like, how do I not be that person? Oh, absolutely. Well? Yeah. I was like, this ship is going down. I need to. Yeah. I remember hearing my mom once on the phone say, well, I can always make money. And I remember stopping in my tracks looking for some wood to knock on because I was like, that is totally jinxing us. If you think we, you can always make money. I was like. I can tell you from being in Sarajevo during the war, a lot of folks, you know, who had important skills, so they thought they're meaningless when war comes. Do you still have that feeling? Oh, absolutely. I think the next catastrophe is right around the corner, and I want to prepare for it. At CNET, no, no, I mean, they, they, they asked a couple of years ago, they're like, does anyone want to take a chem bio warfare training class so that there's a chemical or biological attack you can work during it? I was like, yes, me. <laughs> you were the first So guy. I've got a Tyvek suit and a gas mask in my office ready to go. Wow, um, I know yeah. where we're going if, does, this, right, if exactly. it goes down. That's the other thing. My, my coworkers are going to kill me for it, so I have to barricade myself <laughs> in my office. Well, you got to learn some sort of Israeli martial art or something. Uh, believe me, looked into it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, listen, it, clearly you have no shortage of life experience to share with our audience. <laughs> yes. So... Here is uh, our first question. This comes from Judy in Los Angeles. And Judy writes, my mom is in her early 90s, Mm. like your mom, and tends to throw away lots of things to keep her life simple. Mm. The trouble is some of these things do have sentimental value for me and my family. 
So I'll say something like, whatever happened to that music box and it'll be long gone. Oy. How do I take some of these things off her hands before they hit the dumpster? It seems like a touchy matter, as these are her things. Oh, that's an interesting question. I, uh, first of all, I, I can see why it's a touchy matter, but it's not as if you're asking her to give you something that she's otherwise selling and needs to make money off of or anything like that, yeah. or that she wants to keep. So I think there's no problem in pointing out to her the things that do have sentimental value for yeah. you, at least in planting the idea yeah. in her mind. Because you, I always assume people will know what does, but yeah. nobody ever knows. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. why people's parents throw out their comic book collection, and, you're, oh and they're dad. like, oh my God, what have you yeah. done? My yeah. dad actually always talks about that. He's Is like, right? I had a Spider-Man issue one. I'm like, what happened to it? He's like, we threw it away. Right, yeah. It was for kids. Well, Obama <laughs> talked about that when he nominated um, the Supreme Court justice. Garland. Garland. He actually talked about how Garland had to sell his comic book collection to pay for college. Right. <laughs> I, I used to sell comic yeah. books at conventions because I was concerned about wow. my financial stability. Really? Yeah, yeah. Do you wish you had any of them back? I, I have a lot of them back, yeah. <laughs> No, no, I have. I wasn't a very good salesman. He's like, I, was, I, I didn't say I was good at earning money. I just. <laughs> All right. So there you go, Judy. Tell your loved one uh, what has sentimental Absolutely. value for you. Indeed. And for those just joining us, this is the Dinner Party Download. We are speaking with Anderson Cooper, and he's answering listener etiquette questions. Here's one from Peary in Colorado. When I address a woman, a grocery clerk, barista, or what have you, I say, ma'am, as a sign of respect. I do the same thing for men by addressing the individual as sir. But many younger women have taken offense to the moniker, ma'am. Yet I feel miss or young lady is demeaning and sexist. What to do? Wow, that's mm. a good question. You know, I, I would have never thought ma'am was objectionable. But I, I do, I had a case of this recently where somebody yeah. said, I was with somebody who said ma'am to someone, and they were like, did you call me ma'am? Um, I, you know, I guess don't use it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It, uh, I'm not sure what you should use. I, Sir, to me, is a very thing that a lot of folks down in the South, like my executive producer of my show, his kids all call me sir. You know, it's like a polite Southern yeah. sort of yeah, yeah. thing. And I think probably ma'am is the same. I definitely think young lady is seems <laughs> yeah. a little odd. Yeah, you're right, Perry, about yeah, that. Yeah, I wouldn't go for young lady. I'm from Philadelphia. I think yo covers both <laughs> yo, genders. Yeah. There's nothing objectionable about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, or just, hey, how's it going? Or nice to see you. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Something. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I always do now is I have the worst memory. So when someone comes up to me in the street, I don't know if I actually know them. They recognize me from TV. So I have to greet everybody with equal enthusiasm. <laughs> and so I realized long ago, never say, hey, great to meet you, because it's very possible I have already had dinner with this person yep. and I just don't remember. Yeah. And it might have been last night because my memory is that bad. <laughs> so now I just say, great to see you. Mm. Nice to see you. So that sounds like a good one. Great to see you, X. Right, yes. All right, there you go, Piri. And uh, I think we have one more. Bo from Cincinnati writes... I'm in my late 30s, and I started a new job a few months ago. My colleagues don't know that I'm gay. Mm -hmm. When we talk about our significant others and partners, I tend to use vague terms. How would you recommend coming out to these colleagues? Where do you draw the line between personal and professional conversation? Wow, that's a good one. I mean, look, I, you know, I came out in high school uh, to my friends and was always open in my office environment, uh, which I found just easier. Yeah. But, uh, but I didn't come out, you know, I guess publicly and make a public declaration until, I don't know, a couple of years ago when I felt like, not saying something yeah. was like saying something. Mm. So um, I, I think in a work environment, you have to be aware, you know, what the office environment is, what state you're working in and what the laws mm. are in terms of any protections for you. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's states where you can be fired if they don't like you. So I, I wouldn't make some blanket statement like, well, everybody should come out. And I'm certainly not the person to be, you know, telling people when they should come out. But I will say that it's 
often less of a deal in my experience. And if you think it's going to be fine, you know, making almost a light of it, saying like, actually, I don't know, I was on a radio program the other day and uh, clearly the guest didn't know that I was gay. And so they were asking me about, you know, hey, we should go out and like, Go to the Caribbean sometime and pick up girls. And I was like, wow, um, you know, uh, not my general interest. That's not my demo. Anderson Cooper, nice. his new book is called The Rainbow Comes and Goes, A Mother and Son on Life, Love and Loss. And you can see him on TV nearly constantly. That's right. So he's going to be too busy to answer any more etiquette questions for the foreseeable future. But don't fret. Ooh. We have an army of esteemed etiquette answerers lined up. And if you have a question for them, submit it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. to eavesdrop. Nanachka Khan is the showrunner of the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. The show's won kudos for its smart, subversive take on the American immigrant experience. Today we overhear her celebrate her own immigrant dad and his funny bone. Hi, my name is Nanachka Khan, and I'm here to talk about my father, who inadvertently launched my career in comedy. So my parents are both born in Iran. My brother and I were born in the United States, in Las Vegas, and then we moved to Hawaii. And growing up, you start to understand what's funny based on pop culture, like Eddie Murphy's stand-up. I have some ice cream, and I'm gonna eat it all. I'm gonna eat it all. Or Chris Rock, Bring the Pain, or kind of the stuff that you see on TV that you come in to school the next day and you reference. But my dad, he never sort of shared in any of that because American humor doesn't really translate into other cultures. But he did have a great sense of humor, and he wanted to share that with my brother and I. So here are three routines that made my dad, and maybe only my dad, laugh. The first thing he would do, you know, we're in Hawaii. It's beautiful. People fly from all over the world to come here and, you know, enjoy everything Hawaii has to offer. But my dad, he would take us to these little, like, suburban streets that could have been in any town. You don't even see the ocean. And he would just have us driving around and kind of looking at houses and looking at parked cars. And he would, you know, <laughs> ask us questions like, how much do you think they pay in rent in that house? And I, of course, had no idea. I mean, I'm like 11 years old. I think what he found funny was that we were trapped in this mundane routine guessing how much houses cost to rent and how much cars cost. And the more we hated it, the funnier he thought it was. Okay, so the second bit he would do is my dad would drive my brother and I to school in the mornings and he would hold up two cassette tapes and he would say, you can either listen to the soundtrack from the movie Rocky or Persian music. You know, I don't see a good choice there. So nine times out of ten, we'd be driving up this hill, all the all, all the windows down, and the soundtrack to Rocky is just blasting. And all of your friends, they would just all turn and just stare at us. Like, that's the last thing that you want to be blasting is, like, because it's also so dumb. You know what I mean? You're not, like, trying to get ready for the big fight. You know, it's like... <laughs> You're going to math. But my dad 
couldn't stop laughing. Like, he just loved it so much every day. Like, that was his morning enjoyment. Okay, so the third bit my dad loved to do was go through fast food drive throughs which, you know, you would love. You're 12 years old. Everybody wants to go to McDonald's, of course. And sometimes, you know, after soccer practice or whatever, we'd have friends in the car. And my dad, he thought it was super funny to order normal and then throw, like, a Persian food item in there. So we'd pull up to the drive-thru and he would be like, yeah, um, can we get two quarter pounders with cheese, a Big Mac, three large fries, two Diet Cokes, a Sprite, and some Zulbia? And then there would be, like, this long pause. And the voice would come through and be like, uh, I'm sorry, sir, what? And he would repeat the whole order again. Two quarter pounders with cheese, a Big Mac, three large fries, two Diet Cokes, a Sprite, and some Zulbia. Ah, uh, we, we got the whole order, but we don't have that last thing. Oh, you don't have Zulbia, the, the Persian dessert, sort of like a honey? No, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't carry that at McDonald's. Oh, okay. You know what? That's fine. Uh, I'll just have some Duh. Uh, we have apple pie. No, no, no. No apple pie. Just duh. Uh, what? Duh, you know, the Persian to drink with yogurt and the mint. So I'm sorry, sir. We, we don't we don't carry that. Uh, this is McDonald's. I mean, we it would go on and on, and my brother and I would just be horrified. Our friends don't know what's happening. And my dad loving it. So these moments with my dad at the time were horrifying. But in retrospect, you know what? He was right. Like, it was funny. The sort of uncomfortableness of having to go along with something. Someone's driving something and someone's an unwilling participant to me is like a great comedy, you know, algorithm. So cheers to dad, because sort of the things that I find funny and the things that I don't, I think you can draw a direct line back to being trapped in the backseat of his car and just having to go along with whatever bit he had in his head. Ninochka Khan, season two of Fresh Off the Boat, the sitcom she runs, is in full swing now. It airs Tuesdays at 8 on ABC. All right, time for a quick break, but coming up, I learn why you shouldn't bathe in the rain, mm. and Rico samples a breath-freshening, mouth-clogging Indian treat when the <laughs> Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll remember the late great musician Prince. Plus, I take the opportunity to nibble upon some pawn. Well done. Thank you. But before we get to that, <laughs> it's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. It being April and all, we felt it was an appropriate time to talk about rain. That's right. And our expert is award-winning environmental journalist Cynthia Barnett. She's written several books about water. The most recent is called Rain, A Natural and Cultural History. It came out in paperback this week. When I spoke to her about it last April, I started with a simple question. What is rain? I can tell you that in a drop of rain is the water we know about, but then there also has to be something else. There has to be a little tiny something for the drop to cling to. So there's a tiny bit of dust or a even a tiny bit of bacteria, anything um, that's called condensation nuclei 
that allows the drop to actually cling around. That's what it needs to form a drop. Does that mean there's no such thing as clean rain because it's all clinging you to know, something? I hate to tell you this, but there's no such thing as clean rain. Oh, I've man. got I, I interviewed. I know. <laughs> I know it dashes. Uh, there's no clean snow either, really. Huh. When you think about it, you know, it, it falls through the sky that we've pumped full of all kinds of emissions. Mm. It travels around the world through anything we've put out into the world. So for me, that was sort of the really interesting lesson of this book. So getting rained on is basically like taking a dirty shower. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that. Even with everything I've learned about rain and, and what's in rain, I still love being out in the rain. I just danced with my kids in the rain yesterday. Well, dirty or not, uh, man has always had an interesting relationship with rain. Um, man has often tried to control rain. Your book is filled with many colorful stories about people trying to master rain in one way or another. One of them that stands out is James Pollard Espy, yes. who was, I believe, America's first meteorologist. Yeah, so so the, the, the interesting thing about James Pollard Espy is that he was a brilliant meteorologist, and he was the United States' first meteorologist. Mm-hmm. And Under Ulysses he, Grant, right? The president? Yes, was, yes. Yeah. And the one falter he had in, in his atmospheric brilliance is that he believed that fire caused rain, which which makes sense. You know, remember what I said about you needing some little tiny particle. So he thought yeah. that if we sent particles up into the atmosphere, that it would make it rain. So he actually proposed to Congress that we plant vast forests throughout the middle of the nation and light them afire <laughs> <laughs> um, when drought came so that we could make it rain. And um, that never happened. And the interesting thing about why it didn't happen, it's not that people didn't believe that we could do it. It was that actually the Southern congressmen were really worried about the federal government as they still mm. are, right? Yeah, so they didn't yeah. want the government to be able to control the weather. And that's why his oh, proposal didn't pass. Yeah. So it wasn't, they weren't suspicious of Espy's idea that if you burned no. large swaths of forests, rain would come. No, no. People had very crazy ideas about how to make it rain. Well, people can turn to your book if they want to hear uh, more of those stories, because now we're going to play a game I created. <laughs> There's so many neat facts in this book, I was trying to think of a way to uh, get to them. So I created this game. It's called the Rain Fact Lightning Round. Get the pun? Oh, I love it. it. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I love it. And so here, so I'm going to read you some facts I learned in your book, and you can maybe just give me a short explanation. Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. So the first one is the the expression, when it rains, it pours. Okay. When it rains, it pours comes from an ad developed for Morton Salt Company in 1911. So you know the wonderful girl with the umbrella on the cylinder of of Morton Salt? Yeah. In the early 20th century, table salt had this notorious problem of caking up in rainy weather and nobody could get their salt out of the canister. So Morton began adding something. It was an anti-caking agent called magnesium carbonate to Mm -hmm. its salt so that it would pour better. Uh, but But the executives didn't want to say, 
oh, yay, we have added magnesium carbonate. <laughs> so some brilliant marketing person came up with when it rains, it pours so yeah. that they could emphasize the benefit that, that Morton salt could pour in any weather. It's actually a really elegant tagline. Now it just reads like cynicism. You know, it's just like, well, of course, when it rains, it pours. But in reality, yeah, it's like, no, when it, it rains, really, the no. salt will pour because it will not cake. Okay, this one's a little more obscure in the lightning round, but you'll know what I'm getting at, and you can explain it to us. Pruned fingers. Yeah, so finger wrinkles. We evolved in what scientists call pluvial times, a a time of a lot of rainfall in in East Africa so many million years ago um, when we began walking upright. The rainforest was turning to desert and... Um, you know, we, we stand up and begin to search for rain. So a neurobiologist I interviewed named Mark Cengizi um, has linked the finger wrinkles on our hands to those times. He, he hypothesized that we needed um, grips. They're essentially rain treads for helping mm. us get along in those, in those jungles in super rainy times. And we don't, we don't need them when it's, not, when, when it's not raining. Our fingers are smooth because it's better to grip with smooth fingers in dry times. But in wet times, our fingers actually do a much better job of gripping when we have those finger wrinkles. It's like tires for your car. Right. Right, All right. exactly. <laughs> and so my last question, what is your favorite song about rain? That's a really hard one. Um, I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to say, and this is odd because I love rain, <laughs> but I Can't Stand the Rain by Ann Peebles. All right. We're going to use that song to go out. Uh, okay. Cynthia, thank you for braving the rain in Florida to come speak with us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been really fun. Cynthia Barnett. Her book is called Rain, A Natural and Cultural History, and it just came out in paperback. And folks, Cynthia was kind enough to share with us a YouTube list of her favorite songs about rain. November Rain. It's there. Rainy Day Woman. Yes, that will also be on it. The theme to Rain Man. That's not about rain. Isn't Fred Astaire saying that? No. Anyway, people, (laughs) you can see for yourself. The link is at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, today we are going to talk about something you put in your mouth, but I'm actually not sure you could call it food, weirdly. So hot dogs? (laughs) No. Okay. (laughs) It's an item often chewed in India and in other Asian countries. It's called pan. And what Mm. it is, is the leaf of a betel plant wrapped around sweet, savory, or aromatic spices, candies, and betel nut. All right, I've heard about betel nut. Doesn't it get you high? That would be nice. It's more of a mild caffeine effect, actually. But anyway, you chew the pine, and it it does. It perks you up a little. It freshens your breath, and it supposedly acts as a digestif. I'll take that. Yes, so just outside L.A. is a guy named Chaitanya Vias, who is among the very few in California who make fresh pine, many different kinds, including one he calls the mouthful, which has dozens of ingredients in it. When I went to his shop, I taped him making a smaller one, though, which was still super complicated, and he started by laying down a leaf. It's a betel leaf. So that's the betel leaf. Yeah, this is the betel leaf. We got it from the Hawaii. 
Hawaii people they grow it, and now I'm putting this the lime. I see. So you so you're taking the leaf and you put some lime. kind of white milky lime juice on it. Right. We are mixing it on a leaf. And what is this that you're putting on? You're using something that looks like a large makeup brush to put on. What is this? That is a kata. The red thing is a kata. What is that? It is the root of the tree. Uh, so now the leaf, which is, you know, I'd say it's the size of maybe an oak leaf, but it's uh, kind of a heart shape. Yeah. And now you're using this no, little... I'm, I'm using the fragrance, which is made with the honey and menthol. Honey and uh, mint or menthol? Menthol. Menthol. Also, we are putting, this is called the hiramuti, which is uh, makes your breath fresh. Then okay. after we are going to put the shredded betel nut. Ah, so now shredded betel nut is going on here. It's kind of orange. Sweet, sweet one. So there's, is there sugar in that? They make it with the sugar water. They dip it, then I make it dry, and uh, it comes like this. So you, you shred the betel nut and then kind of dip it in sugar water and let it dry out. Right. So this is the all mixture, and it has a fennel, fennel candy, date, I've actually seen this uh, sometimes at Indian restaurants. It's like a mixture of fennel seed and some little uh, candies, like rice grain-sized candies. Right, right, right. You're right. Okay, now uh, we are going to put the sweet coconut. Wow, there is a lot of stuff in this. Now powdered coconut's going in there? Yeah, powdered coconut. It's a sweet. Oh, that looks delicious. Okay. Then after we are going to put the tutti-frutti. Did you say tutti-frutti? Tutti-frutti. Here is the (laughs) tutti-frutti. These almost look like a little shredded gummy bears or something. Yeah, it's not a gummy, but it uh, looks like that. Then after we are going to put the rose-flavored date. Rose-flavored dates. Yeah. Now the final stage, we are going to put the rose petal, real rose, made with the real rose. Oh, this looks almost like a marmalade made of rose petal? This is rose petal, yeah. And it's kind of reddish. There's every color in the rainbow is going on top of this betel leaf now. Right. Then after, we hold the thing, and it's hard to fold it. Right. Here you go. Making like a little tri-corner. Triangle. Here you go. Making a little triangular pocket. Enjoy the pun. That's your pun now. Okay. All right. Now, it, what I have here is something, it looks almost the size of like a spinach pie, but it's with a wrapping that also makes it look like a grape leaf, like a triangular stuffed grape leaf. It's huge. It's probably about the size of the palm of my hand. Do I just put this all in my mouth? Everything you, you need to put in a mouth and put it by the cheek. Here we go. There you go. Should I be chewing on this at all? Yeah, keep chewing and uh, swallow the juice. The flavor of this thing is incredibly complex. Right, right. There's kind of a mintiness. Minty. Also, I'm getting the sweet from those kind of little candied rice-looking things. Then uh, the menthol ball, then the rose petal, date, and the gum- you call that gummy bear. <laughs> but it's a tutti-frutti, so this, all the sweetness is coming from there. Yeah, now I'm getting the sweetness. I got the first hit of uh, menthol, yeah. but now I'm getting the sweetness. It's really lovely, and I can tell that my breath is going to be a lot fresher when I'm done. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's it going to be a helpful to your digestion system. I feel like I could chew this for forever. How, how big is the mouthful? This isn't even the biggest one you've got. But the Rajwadi has a 28 product. You want to look at the Rajwadi, how to make it? <laughs> I think if we go through the 28 product one, you're going to take up the rest of my radio program. It's only an hour long. Right, right, right. <laughs> 
Chaitanya Vyas. He runs Casey Pond and Shot House in Artesia, California. For a video of Chaitanya making that pond, which really must be seen to comprehend, head over to <laughs> dinnerpartydownload.org. And folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, The Daily Show's senior correspondent Jessica Williams joins us, along with talk show legend Dick Cavett. It's a good one. Yes, and thanks to our producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Nina Patak, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Also to our interns Christian Coons and Carla Javier. Engineering assistance this week came from Jake Gorski. Larissa Anderson is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, this is usually the point in the show where we give you one for the road, a new song to spin on your way home from a party. This week, though, we want to take a moment to say goodbye to an American original, Prince Rogers Nelson. That's right. Prince has been the soundtrack to some of the greatest moments of our lives. By now, you probably know he passed away at the age of 57 this Thursday. We never had the good fortune of interviewing him, but for our first ever soundtrack segment, Yukimi Nagano of the Grammy-nominated electronica group Little Dragon put a beautiful Prince song on her playlist. Here's a bit of that segment from back in 2011. Prince, Crazy You, one of my all-time favorite songs is from his first album. As much as I love Kiss and Diamonds and Pearls, anyway, you know all the hits, but but this one is, is special for me. you listen to an album and you feel like you're almost in someone's space because uh, it's very intimate it's just him and a guitar and it takes you somewhere Crazy You by Prince. Amazing. He died this past Thursday and folks I think the best thing we can do to honor him this weekend is the dance and love all weekend long. Agreed. Get to it and bon appetit.